Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street is a progressive campaign agency that specializes in community organizing. We work with uh, non-profit and community-based organizations, trade unions, progressive businesses and social democratic parties across the globe to develop strategies, train engagement staff in leadership and power building and help you execute your campaign with data-driven tactics and actions. And in 2022, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to share their stories, inspire others, take action and organise communities for change. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com.au. Today's episode is also brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Are you an enthusiastic, client-focused lawyer? Morris Blackburn Lawyers are hiring a lawyer, associate or a senior associate with experience in personal injuries to join their team in Townsville. They offer a safe, supportive and collaborative environment backed by inclusive leaders and progressive policies. And even more, you'll manage your own file load with support from their team. Are you ready to join them on a journey to extend access to justice for more Australians? If so, apply now at morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on. Hello and welcome to another episode of Socially Democratic your weekly centre-left politics and organising podcast, which is out every Friday that dives into the progressive campaign issues of the day and the people leading them from home and abroad. On today's episode, we are joined by uh, activist and writer Van Batam. I don't think I need to really give you any more of a, uh, a, uh, a bio than that. I think we all know who Van is. Um, Van, obviously, is the co-host with uh, her lovely partner, uh, Ben Davison, for Week on Wednesday – um, I've been on their show and I've been meaning to get uh, Van onto our show. So today is the day. So I'm looking forward to having a great chat to Van. She obviously wrote that book about QAnon. Um, we're going to have a bit of a chat about that, but maybe a little bit of sort of walk down memory lane and talk about student politics and all the other things as well. So check out today's episode. Don't forget to, uh, if you uh, like the show, give us um, five stars on Apple Podcast or on Spotify and when you don't listen to the show leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and don't forget to subscribe to the show on your favourite podcast app and for all the updates follow Dunn Street on Facebook Twitter Instagram and LinkedIn okay let's get to today's episode we are taping this one on a Thursday afternoon on the lands of the Wurundjeri people and uh, I am joined not on the line actually in situ which is rare these days given what's happened uh, with uh, COVID and then we've all just moved our entire life onto Zoom or Teams. She's uh, an Australian writer and activist, a playwright and a novelist and the co-host of the weekly podcast Week on Wednesday and more importantly, a senior negotiator for the non-aligned left at the 1995 NUS National Conference <laughs> at Monash Gippsland. Van Batten, welcome to Socially Democratic. It's so lovely to be here. Donnelly, what a journey you and I have been on together. And I'd just like to acknowledge today I travelled from the lands of the Wathaurong people of the Kulin Nation and I just, I've got to say, and I do every time, making that journey just from Ballarat to Melbourne, you see the most powerful legacy of land custodianship and it's something that I take great pride in making that acknowledgement that I think genuinely we live in the most beautiful country on earth and I think First Nations people are responsible for that. Indeed they are. I, uh, it's the Writers' Festival. It's about to begin. I think it begins today, right? The Melbourne Writers' Festival. You've obviously got a book out. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But before we do that, I want to go back in time. And for those of you that don't uh, listen to 
uh, and I can't imagine who wouldn't because I think the Venn diagram of those that listen to Socially Democratic and those that listen to your podcast is a perfect circle. But yeah, it's a shared interest. Yeah. Yeah, we, we like to think of you guys as the machine. You do the machine end and we do the, the policy output end. Yeah, you're the policy nerds, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I love it and that's how it's supposed to work. I, yeah, so when I, I came on your show and I think we kind of gave your audience a bit of a background as to you and I and how we met and all that kind of stuff. But for those who In don't... In brutal factional conflict. Indeed. And for those of you uh, that listen to Social Democratic that don't know that, Van and I obviously met through student politics. Uh, you were a delegate from where? I was a delegate from God's Own University, the University of Wollongong, the greatest university in the history of education. Uh, and I was very proud to represent my fantastic regional university, although I wasn't typical for uh, your NUS hack profile, having no political ambitions, which is always a bit of a spoiler alert for people, but also being one of the very few people who was doing a creative arts degree at the time. Which, which is funny because later on I want to ask you a question about how you made that jump, but I guess that starts to make more sense because, you know, when, when I met you, you know, when we're all in politics, we just make the assumption that we want to have a prolonged career in politics, yet when politics finished for you, you did make the jump into the creative arts world. I want to ask you about that in a moment, but before mm. we do that, when you look back on student politics, I know a lot of ex-hacks walk away from it and kind of almost try and hide that past. It's like there's a, there's a level of shame that they, that they don't want to admit that they were involved in student politics and they loved it so much. But there are others that did love it. I fall into that category. I, got, I found student politics to be a hoot of a time. Oh, it was an incredible time. And I've always been really proud to have had that experience and sort of situate that in my sort of... I think the best way of describing it is my class and cultural journey. Like... I was first in family to go to university. My parents both left school at 15, had no tertiary opportunities, went to work. And I was raised in that sort of white-collar working-class community whose kids did get to go to university because of the Whitlam reforms, you know, massively expanding the, the sector and the, and the franchise and also the Dawkins reforms that meant that places like Wollongong and other regional centres could have universities and university access. So, for me, going to university was like suddenly being in a movie or a television program. I mean, my parents had literally no context for understanding what happened there, so I didn't either. I mean, their friends didn't go to university, like they, they were that kind of community. And so, when I got there, I was like, right, what do you, what do, you do at university? Well, you take your clothes off and run around the pond in the middle of the night and you go to interesting parties and hang out with lecturers who wear too much corduroy and listen to Leonard Cohen. You know who you are, you know, <laughs> and you, you fight the power, like you, you get amongst it. And, I, and that's what I thought university was about because I'd seen it on TV and read about it in notorious Frank Morehouse books and that's what I did. And I got involved in student politics because I was the chick at the bar who was really into bands. Like, I had a few band T-shirts and a friend of mine was in righteous umbrage about some campus issue and was like, we've got to do something about these people and blah, blah, blah. And I sort of stared into my twoies black and was like, yeah, man, totally, somebody should. And the next thing I knew, I was walking through campus and somebody handed me a How to Vote flyer with my name on it and it turned out that I had somehow nominated to be activities officer. I didn't even know what that was. I was like, I hope that's nothing to do with sport. I mean, my interests <laughs> have kind of moved on. And it turned out that I got the job of booking the bands at the university. I mean, I had the right look for it, mm. if no you know, particular uh, talent for, um, for band management, but that's the job I got. 
And then I was part of a group of students who ran as NUS delegates. And I didn't really know what that meant either. But I was really popular on campus. I had a solid, I mean, only hacks understand this. I had a solid 300 vote base, which was a delegate <laughs> quota from the Faculty of Creative Arts. Thank you. And got elected as an NUS delegate. And at the time, I was a member of the Labor Party, which was something I'd never even thought about because my parents were Labor people, my grandparents were members of the party, everybody was a union member, and it was, you know, just a cultural thing and there was a Labor club on campus, so I joined it. And after I got elected, I mean, I hadn't even... I'd never been to a Labor club meeting, but my name was on a database somewhere. I got all these phone calls from hacks, (laughs) friends of yours, calling me, telling me how to vote... And I was absolutely enraged, like, how dare anybody tell me how to vote? And, of course, I got uh, very cleverly recruited uh, by a woman who, um, a young, very, at the time, very politically talented young woman who was at the University of Melbourne, who just won the, elect- the election for General Secretary at Melbourne Uni, which ne- required more votes than you need mm. to get federal parliament, <laughs> federal parliamentary election. It was quite the campaign to run and she found me and she was like look it's okay to be labor and not be in a labor faction i'm labor and i'm not in a labor faction it turned out she was in the pledge which was the sort of hard left labor faction yeah i know right and um and she was like you can have radical environment politics you can be heavily involved in your women's collective you can do all the things that you are doing and and be in my faction with me. And I was like, well, that sounds like where I belong. Mm. So I went off to the non-line left. And I did, after a couple of years of brutal fights with people like you, mm-hmm. I did let my Labor membership lapse and went into the sort of long tantrum against Labor politics that, you know, I endured for the best part of a decade. But that was very much of its time. I mean, I was in Wollongong where there were feral problems with branch stacking and all the stuff that has long since been cleaned up and and fixed but it was a a time you know it was the 1990s the cold war was ending there was you know this confrontation on the left about the soviet project had obviously been a total disaster where did hard left people Mm. go like if you believed in collectivism and cooperativism which has always been a very solid part of my politics but hasn't necessarily had the sort of connection with the organised labour movement in Australia as cooperative politics does in the UK, for example, Mm. Um, you ended up in the environment movement because that's sort of where the fight had shifted. But I, after that sort of experience, I went to the UK and was very much found my people in British labour, which is something that um, obviously got me on the path I am now and felt much more reconnected to my people But I was fascinated. After my first NUS conference, I was hooked. And that had to do with being a creative arts student. And it had to do with this sort of being a stranger in a strange land, like being this very state school, working class kid who was like, this is where it's at. Like, this is where the the conversation about power is incubating. And the the factional traditions and the songs and the flags and the T-shirts that and the alignments and the drama and the affairs and, you know, it really, it had an appeal to me as a theatre person just going, this is spectacle and this is the intersection of performance and power and all the things I'm interested in. And I was addicted, like immediately, like hooked on my first shot, don't I? What, if you think about the most memorable moment of an NUS conference... 
for you? Which is the one that stands out the most? Oh, I had many. Um, my first conference was pretty hilarious. I remember the convener of your faction, who shall remain nameless, for he is dead to us, he was giving a speech and he was pro-HEX and the National Education Officer of NUS, which was an extremely contentious position because obviously everybody on the left was anti-HEX and believed, as I still do today, that education should be free and equal and paid for through a graduate tax. What's wrong with graduate taxes? Anyway, and he stood up and there was a trot from... ECU, who shall also remain, remain nameless, although she and I are, you know, um, comrades in various activist projects now, who was really living living the dream, and this was quite an exclusively educated young woman, I believe is the term, with her shaved head and a fabulous floor-length dress, who, as your friend was speaking, marched down between the tables with a sign saying, first up against the wall, at which point your friend just lent in the microwave and w- microwave microphone and went, EJ, when the revolution comes, you'll be first up against the wall because I'll be in charge of the secret police. <laughs> I remember that. And it was funny because at the time it was true. And I was just like, I am in. The dialogue around here is just marvellous, like these incredible hatreds and just these incredible characters, like... I met a woman at that conference who now I would consider a friend, um, married to another friend, and, you know, we're all adults now, and she had injured her leg somehow and was literally, like, marching down, um, marching down, because we used to have the NUS conferences at what was then the University of Ballarat, now Federation University. I find it hilarious I don't live particularly far from where I had these sort of life-changing moments. And she was marching down to absolutely rip someone to shreds and had this sort of dark look and it would have been three o'clock in the morning and she was on a walking stick and she literally looked like an assassin from a noir movie like some just something really full-on was going to go down and of course there were all those nights where we would all just get so drunk Mm. so screamingly drunk and we'd all be hanging out together, like the, the drunker you got, the more the factional stuff just sort of fell away. Mm. And I was notorious for sneaking out of my own faction's parties to go to yours. I mean, I think we all know that. I think you were always slightly grateful that I did. <laughs> well, I mean, I think the unity parties were always notoriously the best because we just had the best resources. We, you know, we had a lot of alcohol and it was very, very well organised. I mean, we had like a, we had a beer whip and you know, all that kind of stuff. And that was one of the most contentious positions to get elected to. It wasn't the general secretary spot. It was who was going to be organising all the grog for the week oh yeah i mean it was so funny and i think i fundamentally knew that at the time although my faction notoriously had resources of its own um yes it was true yeah specifically as i'm sure you all remember girls who were not who might have really been into hugging trees but were interested in hugging other things as well i think was uh part of the attraction there but that was i mean all the interpersonal drama was always so funny but of course i mean i had my infamous moments i took my clothes off on conference floor once to make a rather salient point um that uh, that i think you know had a lifelong impact for good for ill who can tell on a couple of people who were there who perhaps not used to people taking their clothes off not doing creative arts degrees where for us that was quite normal um that was that was uh, one of the many interesting things i did i got purged from my own faction by a that was a sort of infamous moment um where my 
there, there was an enormous fight around a constitutional change and you really had to be there. Is this CN119? This is CN119. And if you, don't, if, if you don't know what that means, you weren't there. But literally everyone who was there, it's like a code word that, that calls from the deep. It's like the sound of Cthulhu rumbling under the earth. CN119. And I had taken a minority position in my faction. It had to do with state branch funding allocations. Like, it was hilarious. Mm. And it became this, from each according to their ability to each according to their needs. And, and I... Um, we only needed 25% of the floor to sink the vote because it was a constitutional change. And I was purged from my faction for taking the position that state branch funds... Like, state branch... Uh, state branches should control their own funds. This is hilarious. I mean, can you think of anything more ridiculous? Mm. Um, and everybody was like, no, you know, it should have been one state collectivist pool. And I was like, that would just be reinforcing the federal hierarchy. You know, the kind of things you get so impassioned about as a student. And, and we sunk it. We did it. We actually did it. I, I mean, I put myself in some compromising positions to get those votes only, but I got them and, and, and sunk this motion. I was up against half of my own caucus, uh, Left Alliance, the trots I despised, you guys and um, the Labor student, the uh, NLS, I think they're called now, but the Labor Left students. And somehow, like, we put together this ragtag band of splitters, anarchists and no-goods and wrecked this motion. And it was, it was great. Like, I, it was one of those moments where I felt, you know, you, if you are in the right place at the right time and you're prepared to do literally anything to win, you don't even need a majority. Democracy is amazing. It is amazing. I do recall that... Is the, that a Trumpian sentiment? The, I don't the, know. Uh, the next year on uh, the Student Unity T-shirts at National Conference, it said 80-20, our favourite split, <sighs> celebrating yes. the, uh, the achievement. I don't know why we were doing that. We must be wanting someone. You were on the wrong side. No, eighty twenty was the that was the justification for Hex. Was that oh, is that what that, that university gag was? degree? Yeah, yeah. Ah. That's what that t-shirt. I love how you don't know right. the meaning of your own t-shirt. Policy. I was not there to pay I attention. Know, to that kind I know. I know. Donnelly. I remember. Just trying to count bells, man. That's all. Whereas my um, factional t-shirt, my favourite uh, non-line left one, was with the picture of the nuclear family from the 1940s, saying "Doing numbers for the revolution." I think I remember that. And we always. I mean, that was the thing about the caucus I was in, and it was interesting all the different directions people went from my caucus because we had Greens but we had some very committed um, anarchists and uh, but we also had a couple of guys who were like from Stalinist Greek families who had left that particular country during the the coup and like just a really interesting variety of left-wing perspectives and people like me who Mm. were hard left laborists really and but we did really have that sense of doing numbers for the revolution and learning how the machine worked so we would be able to have policy influence. And in terms of the people who are attracted to those kind of politics, it's been interesting to see just where those sort of friends of mine have ended up because they've ended up... Some of them went into political careers in the Greens, some of them did Labor stuff, but others went into unions, but um, a lot of them just went into the NGO sector with a much more sort of brutal understanding Mm. of the real politics of change, which I found... I found that that was like a good contribution for me to make to be in that political space of of people who were willing to... My partner Ben and I have a saying in our house, which is you can achieve anything in politics if you're not interested in taking the credit. Mm. And 
nonaligned left people really lived that. Some we doubt and became trots and quite useless, and that's very sad, but I don't hang out with them anymore. The skill sets that you did learn from it, I think are remarkable. Relationship building, co- you know, um, coalition building, negotiations, counting a ballot, uh, running a ballot, public speaking, just getting up on the floor at 3am in a very, very tired, hot Ballarat conference floor where everyone's angry and tired and on a whole bunch of different things and for you to speak in front of that group if you can deliver an argument a a, a coherent argument even though you know that there's at least 50 percent of the floor hate your guts and there's the anger in that room but you can control yourself and make a good argument i think you can speak in any environment yeah and i do i mean i very fortunately had a theater um, had a theatre education and theatre background. And genuinely, I get very, very angry when anybody pours scorn. The Republicans are doing this in America at the moment around the student debt issue, pour scorn on creative writing or theatre degrees because I'm like, I'm in public life because I have that education. I am an excellent communicator because I was trained to be one mm. from the onset level. And something that I learned, and CN119 is a good example, that the skills that I had developed in my degree of persuasion and confidence, I mean, I remember that night that I did take my clothes off to shut everyone up. Like, before I spoke, I was in, like, an antechamber to the hall where the conference was taking place, and I knew that I had to do something, because there were girls in my caucus who were really frightened and other delegates from because things were just out of control nobody had slept everybody had been drinking it was getting really really contentious there was a lot of bullying crossing the line behavior and I knew I had to do something to I basically knew I had to do something to lower the tone and just bring down the temperature and get a laugh really and I had to really I strategised it. I was like, what can I do? What can I say? And settled on, take your clothes off. <laughs> like, <laughs> that'll work. So, yeah, that's what I, And it worked. Like, it... Because everybody just freaked out and it was just such a surreal thing to happen. And um, But it worked and it meant that my delegate stayed. I mean, I had so many proxy votes. I looked like a Christmas turkey at that point. <laughs> but, um, but all of those things that I learned in the US, I was able to put the theory into the practice... Mm. And to become a good public speaker and to become like an effective writer of persuasive political opinion. Like I was running the, our factional newspaper and obviously on campus, the jobs that I had on campus, I went from activities officer, I was editor of the student newspaper, I was women's officer, I was able to sort of... And these are at times they're quite contentious fights on campus about the validity of those enterprises you know the about what a student newspaper was supposed to do about why we had a women's room and who was allowed in there and because I was an NUS veteran and I had done five conferences and had all of these sort of engagements um, my sort of retirement job was we lost a member of our council and the the faction on campus asked me if I would come back and do women's officers so a trot wouldn't get it and I was like yeah yeah of course and it was at the time that we had um trans girls on campus wanting to use the women's space because they were subjected to ongoing daily violence and they just wanted to eat their lunch in peace Mm. and I had these girls come to me saying oh are we welcome and it was like but yes of course like why wouldn't you be welcome you know this is a women's space you're trans girls you belong here of course and I had I had the skills to negotiate um not that their right to be there, because obviously they had an inherent right to be there, but when we went off campus and we're doing inter-campus things, 
we found this sort of horrible romp of TERFs, you know, these trans-exclusionary radical feminists, I use feminists quite ironically in that context, who were sort of policing inclusion to things like NOWSA, the Network of Women Students in Australia Conference and things like that. And because I was this NUS veteran, I was like, okay, bring it on, bring on the fight because I'm not abandoning the women in my collective. I don't care what you know, whatever theoretical position you've come to about women born women or some other kind of rubbish, I will defend these people and our politics and our collective decision-making in this broader context and every single person in my collective will be safe. And, yeah, and it was just sort of an interesting experience that it was supposed to be my quiet retirement, being women's officer and, you know, running Blue Stocking Week and having the odd poetry night. But once it's in you, like, once you have those skills, they never go away. And putting that in the context of who I am and where I come from, like nobody in my family apart from my, my uncle, the um, union official, was ever really put in a position to have that experience to go, power is about language. Like in a democracy, language is everything because in a democracy it's conveying information, making an argument, persuading people, generating propaganda, understanding branding and positioning and spectacle and all of those things, you know, the, all the semiotic, the semiotic language that I had learned, the language of analysis as part of my creative writing theatre degree at Wollongong Uni, and I, taught, I ended up teaching visual art and doing all of those kind of degrees to just fill my head with understanding how messaging works, that's been absolutely, that's my understanding of democracy, is about a clash of language systems or a, a confrontation of one set of ideas and language with another and the, ta- the strategy and tactics, the obstacles, um, the, the resolutions that come out of those engagements. That's where I'm at. I've always been in that fight. Has it, that foundation, did that lead you to have an interest in then writing a book about... QAnon? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can't get away from it. So I did my time in NUS and I did a year as state president, which was unbelievably full on um, because that was at the time that the Howard government was in, they were closing universities, the whole thing, and it was brutal and exhausting. And I I had this quite life-changing incident where I had gone back to Wollongong and was finishing up my degree, doing my honours and sort of trying to work out what was going on with my life and what I was going to do because I didn't want a political career. Mm. Um, I'm just in it for the semiotics, guys. And uh, my partner at the time and I had this beautiful little cottage that we're paying nothing in rent for in Bulai. You cannot... It's now Zhuzhi of the Zhuzhiest, but at the time it was Bulai. Where's mm-hmm. that kind of thing? And he just won a PhD scholarship and we were sort of on this academic track with our lives. And we had a flatmate who was never really there. He more or less lived with his girlfriend, but he couldn't sort of handle the, the intellectual commitment to what he was physically doing. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we were all very young. Anyway, he was staying at a friend's house and we hadn't seen him for weeks and he died of an aneurysm in his sleep and he was 31 and he was a visual arts student and he was one of the best people I had ever met in my life. I loved him like a brother... And when he died, I had just uh, the shape of my world changed. And 
I had loved being involved in all the crazy activism I'd done. I was one of the menstrual avengers who threw tampons at John Howard to protest the tampon tax. You know, I had been, I'd occupied buildings, you know, like I was, I'd led demonstration, the largest demonstration since, the student demonstration since the Vietnam War. I was at the forefront of them. I had done just the most incredible stuff. But when Mark died, I was like, I'm supposed to be doing a theatre degree mm. and at some point I actually have to do my life's calling as opposed to just be around this sort of fun stuff. It was like leaving a party. It was like leaving a party at the right time. Mm. And so I went to England. I got a scholarship to the University of Sheffield and devoted myself to my craft and to theatre making and got in with a really amazing bunch of young theatre makers who are all extremely famous now um, in back in the UK. And... By the time I came back to Australia, like, I sort of realised that that phase of my life, the hack phase was over and I, the things I had learned politically and the ideological clarification – and this is an underestimated experience in student politics as well, especially in the left – um, like when I and when I'm in the left, I mean, hilarious. Everybody in student politics is in the left. They're liberal students, are basically in the left. If they're doing student politics, you know, they think they're being really right wing, but you know, we all know that they secretly turn up to collective meetings. But um, <laughs> I know who you are. You know, I know who you are. <laughs> and um, but when I talk about the left, I talk about the trots and people like me, the non-aligned left, um, the radical pragmatists, as we called ourselves at the time. And when you're in that space, especially when you're going to broad left caucuses where all the non-Labor left kids, there's always a fight about can the kids from the Labor left come? Are they invited? Are they really in the left? You know, is the Labor Party a left-wing party? And it's like, yes. Yes, it is. And uh, may I just show you the Democratic Party of the United States who are considered a left-wing party in that country and whose most radical champion, Bernie Sanders, is literally proposing a platform that is more conservative than what Labor legislated in 1983. Mm. So, um, but with the, the passage of time, all becomes clear. But in those broad left... They're really hostile. Like they're the most non, the n most non-collegiate faux coalition experience you can possibly have. And I just at, at the end, I just refused to go because I was like, I'm I am not going to meetings to get class shamed by people who went to extremely expensive private schools about what the proletariat wants. Mm. Like the proletariat are my parents, and you can like I can speak authentically about their values and experiences and material needs and you can't because your dad works for the World Bank mm. and you have those kind of... I'd never met rich people like that, like maybe one or two kids at drama on a Saturday, you know, um, when I was a teenager and didn't really get what that meant. But I just remember being in a broad left with a lovely young woman who had very good hair who talked about being an archivist. <laughs> and I thought she said archivist. Like I thought it was like an archive person. And I tried to bond with her after this meeting and she looked at me like I was... Typically, uh, Donnelly, a lot of my experiences in Broad Left was like being a waitress who'd wandered into the wrong room. Certainly that's how I was treated and wouldn't you know, that still happens to me a lot. I'm not actually ashamed of the fact that I spent most of my years waitressing but it's that sort of you-exist-to-serve-me dynamic mm. which I've never really been comfortable with but which I get rather a lot in the cultural spaces I tend to wander into and certainly broad lefts were like that.
but it was literally, I mean, literally hilarious. But in those fora, you have to have the reading done because if everybody's playing lefter than thou, my dad said, you can do whatever you want in life, Van, as long as you win. And I took this attitude into broad left caucuses, which meant that I walked in with a library of Marxist theory. Diverse Marxist theory. Watch me go about the American new left. I'm all across Rudy Dutschka and the German new left as well. Second of June movement, I'm down with it. You know what I mean? Like, and that was always my sort of offensive strategy. It was like, I'm going to do you slowly. Mm-hmm. Like, don't you, dare, don't you dare try and outleft me. And, of course, I have monetized this <laughs> in my present career. Nobody beats me at Lefter Than Thou. No one. So, yeah, it was – that was a good experience. I mean, I always found it really funny that I only ever did one politics subject at uni, but my politics reading is, is probably better <laughs> than – most of the people who got beyond one subject. That was part of my problem. I think I um, did heaps of politics subjects but I never went to class because I was having too much fun doing what I thought was the actual politics, which in that case was student politics and young labour. Donnelly, your campus it. campaigns were legendary. <laughs> and in, in the spirit of like full disclosure, I replicated some of your tactics on my own campus to ensure that I was a delegate five times. Fair enough. There you go. Flat- <laughs> Imitation is the best form of flattery. Can we, let's talk about your book. Yep. Q and on and on. Yeah, so my extremely strange journey was I went to England to be a theatre maker and did that for 10 years and then I came back because I got a job at Malthouse in Melbourne and the thing that had happened in the 10 years was that all my old NUS comrades had grown up and were now in politics. So my generation is you, Terry Butler, Adam Bant, Scott Ryan, I mean Andrew Giles, we were all going to parties at the same time, Adam Bant less so. Um, not the kind of parties we went to, baby. And, uh, and of course, they're everywhere, penny sharp, like, and turning up in all these places. So I was tweeting at the time of day that Ospol was tweeting after having been in the UK in 10 years and using Twitter as sort of catching up on Australian news but not necessarily knowing who was making it. Suddenly I was smack dab in the conversation and I was going through some stuff. My father was dying and... I was just online, like, saying extremely mean things about Christopher Pine and um, cheering on my friends and slagging up my enemies. And I... My father died. I was in Sydney in Mum's house on bereavement leave and a friend of mine said, you should get out of the house. Like, the grieving has to end. Come and do a gig. Come and do a feminist comedy night. You'll be great you know, you'll get it all out of your system. And I turned up at a gig at the Vanguard in Newtown, which when I knew it was a place where, you know, like junkie rock fans used to hang out and everybody was a punk. Yeah, no, I did obscene jokes all evening, the lights came on. (laughs) And I was like, that's the former Premier of Queensland in the audience. What on earth have I just done? And I got a phone call from The Guardian, like, the next day saying, we think you're really funny, do you want a column? And I was like me I was like the only thing I haven't written is journalism like I've done everything else poems sonnets I can I mean I'm fully qualified to give you a sonnet and they were like we just we're looking for like unique individual voices we don't want to replicate what all the other media corporations are doing in Australia we want something identifiable and they went do you think you could write about politics and I was like well yeah I know all these people like, I've known them for years. Like, what do, you, what do you want me to write about? Like, I've still got the photos. And I've got photos of you, Donnelly, let me tell you. <laughs> photos you don't even remember were taken. And, um, and they were like, yep, 
great. And it was interesting because when I started running for The Guardian, a lot of people were like, who is she? Where is she from? Like, who is this person? Because I'd been in England for 10 years and didn't follow the typical path. And but all my old friends remembered who I was because they were there the day I took my clothes off. And, of course, the moment you walk into that political space, and especially because of who I am, the waitress, and my diphthong and nasal accent on television talking about macroeconomics is something that a lot of people feel instinctively uncomfortable with and they still don't know why. It's the classism. Uh, it meant that I was just attracting just just incredible amounts of hate from the onset. And especially, you know, I started writing for The Guardian 10 years ago and was there when Gamergate was happening and this sort of unbelievable internet-based movement that was based on trying to harass feminists out of the public sphere. I mean, we'd only really just gotten into it because of papers like The Guardian creating spaces in a mainstream conversation that used to only ever exist in a political fringe. Like, once upon a time, feminists could only really publish independent publications, a sort of, you know, rapidly gestetnered kind of news sheets. And the idea that big brands were going, hang on, like, we have data from the internet now. Mm. Chicks like talking about chicks, you know. Feminist issues could be a thing. And you had that sort of big explosion in the 2000s where people started going, yeah, we want... The one thing that all women have in common is an experience of sexism. And people who can write about that experience are finding massive audiences. And it just meant that from literally the moment I turned up at The Guardian, it was madness. And not just the Ospol ideological confrontation, not just the people supposedly on my own side who I irritated because I'm the waitress, um, but also because I was just in that place in that time where this sort of reactionary right-wing explosion was happening on the internet, you know, and this... The great replacement theory is this sort of... Um, this sort of overwhelming ideological belief to your core, whether you call it that or not, on on the far, on the hard and far right, internationally, particularly in the West, that um, that you know, good law-abiding white patriarchal conservatives who are straight and good and able-bodied are being replaced by an alliance of you know people like feminists and Jews and all these other nefarious actors and we're secretly sneaking in caravans of migrants overnight to replace white people. You know, and this is... It's a paranoia that's particularly relevant to the United States, um, but obviously it's in Australia, it's in Germany, it's in Finland and England and everywhere else. And because of what I represented, which was this sort of entryism of, feminist, of feminists to pub the public sphere and public space... Uh, yeah, I just copped it instantly. I mean, it has been insane. And I've talked a lot about those things that have happened to me. But a couple of years ago, because I got to the point where I was getting death threats and is packages it, delivered to my house. So not just on social media, but also... Oh, no. Yeah. I mean, this is what people don't get. It spills over in, into real life. And people are like, oh, just toughen up. Don't feed the trolls. Just block people. And it's like, I've blocked 10,000 people. They still try to hunt down where I live. I got bashed in Burke Street at 9 o'clock in the freaking morning. Like, the package of stuff delivered to my house was just which depicted gang rapes and genital mutilation. I mean, that was a happy morning for everybody, wasn't it? Oh, I was horrendous. I'm, I mean, I took a guy who was cyber-stalking me and had organised other people to physically stalk me. Um, I took him to court to get an intervention order and he appealed and I ended up in court six times mm. and things like that. So I have to be so careful 
in terms of... I mean, I'm just dehumanised to vast communities of people who've read that I should be run over, I should be killed, I'm stupid. Like, you know, obviously I slipped my way to the top and I'm like, this is the top? I really... <laughs> I'm surprised I didn't have to sleep with more people, frankly. Um, and the whole, you know, this whole question of legitimacy around me even having a platform, which is classism and sexism... Um, it's just meant that I have to take threats really seri- like mm. really seriously. I log everybody who's mean to me on the internet. I have all of these files, like all of these, just in case it's the kind of person who will bash me or kill me or send me death threats or whatever, because that happens to me. And a couple of years ago, there was like a new flavour of abuse and it was this bizarre apocalyptic language, this fight between white hats and black hats, and me being accused of being a pedophile groomer because I worked for The Guardian, and I was like, what on earth is this? This is new. Mm. This is a new one. And it turned out I had stumbled onto QAnon really early. And um, because I, in my files, I'm just like, this is lunatic, sort of weird evangelical stuff. And I started picking up American journalism because obviously this was happening to a whole bunch of different media people who had started reporting about it. And I was like, them, those guys, those are the guys who are sending these weird messages, these weird comments, and sort of bookmark the reporters who were in this space and started following what was going on. And were these people based in Australia or overseas? They're or? everywhere. Right. They're everywhere. There's at the time? At the time, I mean, at the time there was there was a, an American flavour to it. There's always an American flavour to it. But there were POMs, there were a couple of extremely weird Scandinavians and then the sort of Australian right, who I knew quite confrontationally because I, you know, very proud anti-fascist and have gone to the... Um, you know, the counter-Nazi, anti-Nazi, anti-fascist protests in Melbourne, which were all happening in 2014, 2015. 2015, I think, is the key year when they were trying to mobilise groups like the True Blue Crew and the Lads Society. They're, you know, um, Australian... I can't even remember. They're all, I mean, mm. they're the same bunch of guys. Yeah. And I was very visible to them because I had gone to the protest, which I can't do anymore because it's become too dangerous, unfortunately, which makes me very sad. Um, but... I saw them sort of merge, that hard Australian right that I knew started to merge with this weird apocalyptic community into this amorphous QAnon monster. And uh, having friends who are extremism monitors in Australia, I was checking with them going, something's happening, isn't it? And they were like, yeah, something's happening. There's a new sort of... There's been this sort of marriage of traditional conspiracy theory nonsense and neo-Nazis, really, and neo-fascism, and they're coming together, and it's it's bad. And then, of course, when the pandemic hit, and I had so many followers on Facebook and Twitter who were like, my aunt, my cousin, my sister, my brother, they have fallen in with some kind of weird internet cult. Do you know anything about it? Mm. I could go, well, yeah, like I do. This is really bad. And I wrote an article in 2020 in September, which is sort of at the height of the madness in Victoria, saying... And it was based on a piece of news that a guy who was running a QAnon website in the United States had been rumbled and making a fortune from this website. So for people who don't know what QAnon is, an anonymous prophet called Q, who claims to be a secret agent somewhere in the American government, gives these sort of like coded statements about the war between the holy saviour Donald Trump and the evil deep state who are trying to destroy him. And it's mad stuff. And it's recycled 
essentially anti-Semitic propaganda that's been around for, not joking, two and a half thousand years, as I found out when I was doing the research for my book. It's very old stuff. And it's all sort of been repurposed. It's written in the language of a spy thriller. Whoever is doing the post clearly reads a lot of Robert Ludlum and all the books my dad used to read when I was a kid. And I was like, hang on, like, these are all names of Tom Clancy books, like... And these, uh, these appear on a, originally on a website called 4chan and then 8chan, which is now called 8kun. And, um, you know, these communities of people translate them. Anyway, this guy called Jason Galenis was running a website devoted to Q research for all of these, you know, amateur sleuths passing these mysterious pronouncements. And it turned out he was a vice president at Citibank with an interest in data mining. And I took great joy in writing a Guardian article about this, saying these guys are scammers. Um, these dudes know that anyone who believes in a conspiracy theory can be convinced to believe in anything. Mm. And you only have to find 10,000 idiots to give you 10 bucks and you've made $100,000 and you haven't really had to do anything. This is what I mean, all politics is language. And the article went insane. It went completely viral and... So many people, hundreds of people wrote to me and I got a phone call from the wife of one of my friends from school um, saying that she had had an encounter with QAnon people in her yoga class and her yoga guru had wigged out and was talking about the lizard people and she'd seen this article and she just needed to talk about it. And I got a phone call from Heidi Grant, who I've published stuff with before, who are my publishers, who went... We've seen your QAnon article. We think there could be a book in this. Would you do it? And I went, oh, yeah. And told them the story of this friend of mine who in the book I call Michelle. And they were like, yep, done, great. When can you deliver? And I had like three months. I don't think I've ever just... I was doing 17-hour days and it got pretty crazy. But I went undercover in QAnon and um, in their various internet communities and studied them and got to know them. And I had all these sort of fake personas that I had created as part of this research. And seriously, Stephen, like I've done undercover work before. So a few years ago when I was in London, I did a musical satirising the Hillsong Church called Cash In Christ and went undercover in Hillsong for a year, learned all the songs, wore a lot of... But I had some kind of sympathy for those people, you know, like people finding in Hillsong, even though it's heretical, frankly, is my opinion, as a Roman Catholic, they are heretical, um, that people did find comfort in fellowship and and that there was community stuff. And some of the things Pentecostals do, if not Hillsong particularly well, is welcoming the stranger. And you can get mm. your head around that and go, look, mm. there is value here to some people. QAnon people, my sympathy dropped day by day. Right. I just, at, at one point... Somebody was telling me they were going to leave their partner because their partner refused to believe in conspiracy theories with them. And I was just like, I didn't say this because I'm undercover, and, but it was like, dude, your life is not going to get any better than this. The fact that that woman loves you now is frankly a miracle based on your personality. And if you're willing to let her go, nothing is going to improve. Literally nothing. Who are they? Who who was attracted to this QAnon? Middle class people. Really? Middle class people. Uh, look, one of the great mythologies, that was the big surprise. Because one of the great mythologies of the rise of Trump, um, that there was a really early article when Trump came down the golden elevator I believe it's in the New York Times. If I had my notes in front of me, I would probably be able to give you a reference that sort of positioned and it's become 
dogma on the left, particularly on the lefter bits of the left, that Trump voters are the poor displaced white working class of a globalised economy in America and that these poor, uneducated, working class people are the ones who are being led towards this populist um, because of their economic discontent. And the spoiler alert here is that that community of people who are displaced, who have had their jobs offshored, who've had no infrastructure investment, who are living in decaying communities, you know, the collapse of Michigan, all of those things, what's the matter with Kansas, those disenfranchised white working class people are there, but they're not the Trump base. If you're working class in America, you do not have time or money to be the Trump base. It's quite expensive to support Trump in America. You get the fundraising emails about, you know, 50 times a day for a start. And the there's some research that came out recently that talked about the single largest determinant of if you were a Trump voter, apart from being white, was that you're a member of a homeowners association. You know, like it's those those white neighbourhoods of property owners, the petit bourgeois, um, who are invested in the Trump project because of this great replacement theory that some of them have never heard about but sort of believe instinctively mm. that brown people or, you know, LGBTQIA people, trans women, are going into their spaces and taking them over and they're going to be pushed out and they're going to lose their status. QAnon, conspiracy theories, Trumpism, it's a pretty closed Venn universe. Mm. It's about status anxiety. And if you have no status, that's not your anxiety. If you are a disenfranchised working class person in the United States of America, your anxiety is around how you're going to feed your family and how you're possibly going to put together an income in a society that doesn't have a, a functioning welfare state uh, to try and get out of where you are, like uh, of trying to get meals on the table tomorrow, essentially. And yes, there are working class people who vote for Trump, but that's not the character of that movement. And of course, revealingly, the character of the movement that backed extremism in Germany in that crucial period of the 1930s were the same. Sociologists refer to it as the lumpen, not the lumpen proletariat, the lumpen bourgeoisie, like a bourgeois class that's obsessed with status, who's obsessed with maintaining their sort of social position and authority that has the money to indulge extremist adventurism. There's an American sociologist called Thomas Macaulay who I talk about in my book who's written about this very specifically. And again and again and again and again, the people I encountered in my QAnon groups, they were uh, small business people, they might have been nurses, teachers, lawyers, doctors. One of the most famous QAnon identities in Australia was a practising psychiatrist, which is genuinely terrifying. And I've learned since I've been on book tour as well, the people who come to talk to me about the the stuff that um, about QAnon and about the book, they pick up on that. They're like, you know, my cousin is an accountant. He went to university. I don't understand why he believes in lizard people. I don't understand why my yoga guru, who runs a successful small business, has wigged out like this. I don't understand how my cousin, my uncle, my brother, who runs like a 
eco tourist B&B in the north of New South Wales who used to be a hippie. He's now waving t- Trump flags. Like, I don't get what's going on. But it's tied particularly to this um, middle-class bourgeois anxiety. And it, it and like I said, you know, it takes money to invest in the QAnon stuff as well. You have to have disposable time to be part of these forums and, you know, study Q posts and go to your online QAnon meeting to translate whatever the latest pronouncement is and the rest of it. Um, but also going to the conferences and buying the merchandise and all of those things. A a really great um, American newsreader, I think it was Joanne Reid, made the point, who's an African-American woman, like after January 6, which obviously was saturated with QAnon people, um, that which working-class person in America has the money to fly to Washington, Mm. stay at the Hilton and overthrow the government on the weekend? Yeah, that's a good point. When... um January 6 happened, uh, and I think I, I got, got the impression that a lot of supporters of Q, God, that even sounds stupid saying that out loud, but anyway, uh, Trump supporters in particular were looking to Q as if the pronouncements from him or her, um, or them, yeah, or them, yeah, uh, w- were that eventually things would be returned to normal, that Donald Trump is sort of leader in exile, he'll come back, he'll become the new, he'll return as the president of the United States, yada, yada, yada. And obviously, you know, we're two years down the track. Has that really impacted Q and their following? Have, they, have people sort of gone, oh, this is this is this has been a fan- fantasy, this is a ruse? No, because, I mean, there was a lot of fanfare when Trump lost the election that there were people going, oh, my God, it was all a lie. And I don't necessarily put any credibility on that because the communities I were in were like, well, clearly the election was stolen. Like, clearly it was. I mean, you have to remember, these people live in what's called, what cult experts call a sealed information environment where they don't admit any information that contradicts their worldview. They're not in communities that engage with or discuss or have any dialogue around anything that contradicts these beliefs that they hold. And they hold those beliefs willingly and they have reasoned themselves into holding them. It's one of the pieces of advice I give in the book and to anybody who's like, I don't know how to get my uncle out of this, is saying you can't argue a person out... You can't argue with rationality a position, uh, someone out of a position which is irrational. Somebody's made a decision to believe that Donald Trump is an infallible god emperor fighting the evil lizard people conspiracy is not a person you can say, but, hey, mum, lizard people don't exist. Mum is way past you once we're talking about the lizard people. And these sort of self-chosen systems of belief and narrative. Another mythology is that people who believe in QAnon are stupid or poorly read, and that's not true at all. In fact, they're hyper-literate. They read more than you and I do. You know, they're constantly consuming information. It's just bad information, and it's propaganda that asserts this dominant worldview. And, of course, once you're into lizard people, spy games, Donald Trump got emperor land... What's actually happening politically is irrelevant to you. And also because of the class that they're from. Like, the the lumpen bourgeoisie have their material needs overwhelmingly met. Money isn't really a problem for these people, which is why they can spend it on dressing up like Paul Revere and going to Washington and all the nutty stuff they do. And even there was some data that came out during the anti-lockdown protests in Australia, particularly in Melbourne, around who the people who sort of fall into those, what we would, in Australia, the, the freedom movement, anti-lockdown protesters, anti-vaxxers, who those people are, basically um, Palmer United Party or what are they called now? United Australia Party, UAP voters. They're all on a minimum of 80,000 a year. 
you know, like, and their biggest complaint was around the functioning of their businesses. The communities that I were in, the Australians that I saw, like, they were setting up alternative um, commercial systems, essentially, of seeking out one another as customers, as unvaxxed customers for their businesses to get around the rules. Like, I saw heaps and heaps of that. Oh, I'm a massage therapist and I practice Reiki massage and you can, like, I will accept non-vaccinated people because we're pure bloods and whatever and with a special discounted rate of X and blah. Like, it's very much that kind of mindset. And, and that's what's so interesting about how well-funded and well-organised these movements become. There are bad faith political actors who know that there are people in the community who will be who will pay them handsomely and participate politically and mobilise on the basis of being offered a fantasy. And they will do it in the same way that they will, you know, pay for any other... They'll pay to see a Marvel movie. How much of an impact has it actually had here in Australia? I mean, obviously we saw what happened on January 6th in the United States. It was horrific. I mean, waking up that morning and jumping on social media, it was like, oh, my God, what is going on oh, here? Oh, yeah. Um, but in Australia, I'm sort of wondering about the impact that um, Q has had or is it manifesting in a different form, which is all the shit we saw during, particularly in Melbourne with the lockdown, all the, uh, we had a convoy to Canberra, um, we had all the anti-lockdown rallies and vaccination, anti-vaccination rallies. I is mean, that, they, is, that, is it manifesting in that kind of community? Yeah, so they did set old Parliament House on fire. I mean, that's, I mean, that's significant. Yeah. Setting on fire the Museum of Australian Democracy because there's like a there's a local mythology in every sort of QAnon-y community. Um, and some people don't even realise they're in a QAnon community. They're like, oh, I'm in the freedom movement, and it's like, looks pretty QAnon to me, <laughs> Betsy. Um, they. Look at things like um, they, they develop their own mythology. So QAnon in Japan has this whole thing about how the royal family, if the imperial royal family of Japan, is somehow responsible for tsunamis. That's, I mean, that's fun. Wow. Yeah, yeah. And of course, Hillary Clinton murdered JFK. I don't know if you know. Didn't know that. Yeah. So she could become senator for New York. It's all very complicated. Um, I'm not quite sure. Basically, Hillary Clinton is the Antichrist. Mm-hmm. I just, I find this hilarious. What was it? The free childcare? Is that what gave it away? The slacks. Oh, yeah. The slacks. Oh, it's the way she she was laughing on um, Jimmy Kimmel the other night. And you could hear just about Trump's problems with the FBI. And she was absolutely laughing. And I, for the first time, I thought, I understand why you terrify people now. I understand it. Anyway, because she's smarter than everyone. Mm. Um, but it was... In Australia, they have this sort of belief that the physical chair of the Speaker in Old Parliament House is somehow the throne of Australia and if you physically own it, you become king. Something. It's sort of in that realm and that's why they were setting fire to the museum and trying to take possession of the Speaker's chair in the Old Parliament House. Right. Yeah. Like I said, it's all about semiotics, rituals, language, behaviour. Yeah. So, So that's what was going on. And, of course... In Australia, you had the unbelievable harassment of Michael Gunner, who was the Chief Minister of the NT, who had these people threatening the life of his two-year-old child. I mean, I was in forums and I published some of the stuff that I saw about how he and Daniel Andrews should be murdered and people should take up arms against them and Mm. blah, blah. In Australia, the danger is that because they're marginalised from the political conversation by universal enfranchisement, or what we sometimes call compulsory voting, they they will resort, they are resorting to extremist and marginal non-electoral behaviour. So they had their big electoral push through Monica Smith, who's one of them in Victoria's famous anti-vaxxer loon. Um, She ran for the Senate. Did she run here or did she run in New South Wales? I mean, obviously, she didn't chart. And the Palmer thing 
was, you know, obviously in Craig Kelly pushing this and that sort of went nowhere apart from the dude from Victoria. <laughs> Isn't he a colourful chap? Um, what, inter- what an interesting rainbow of beliefs that man holds, Ralph Barbot. Yeah, it's like, and he's irrelevant to the makeup with the balance of power in the Senate anyway. Um, but the real danger in Australia, and I wrote an article about this for the New York Times when, I'll just drop that into conversation, the article <laughs> I wrote for the New York Times, girl from the University of Wollongong, nah, 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 creative writing degree. Um, I wrote about something that I noticed, my partner Ben and I were at home watching footage of the anti-lockdown protests in Melbourne and there was a really famous one where they were all outside the IKEA in Richmond and it was like, are they protesting the democratisation of design? Mm. Like, is it flat packs? Are they beyond <laughs> us? Like, what is the conspiracy of the, yeah. the bargain IKEA planter stand? And we were watching it and there was this demonstration taking place in the gorge that's sort of next to the IKEA and a couple of cops who were totally unprepared for to be suddenly rushed by this crowd. And it wasn't that big a crowd, but the narrowness of the gorge made the people who were there look like, like this intense, you know, shoulder-to-shoulder sort of crowd of people. And you had people in that crowd dressing up as little old ladies as well, famous mm. footage of, you know, the cops restraining a guy who's in little old lady drag going, why is this happening? And then, of course, Ben and, ben and I are watching it and the realisation dawns, this isn't, about Austra- this isn't about what's happening in Australia. Like, because I had seen all this weird sort of commentary on the channels that I was in in my fake personas and people like Dan Bongino, who is a commentator for Fox News in the United States, talking about Australia's drift to totalitarianism, how Australia had ceased to be a democracy. And there had been demonstrations by these people in the United States outside Australian consulates protesting fascist, you know, dictatorial Australia. And I had seen some footage that Dan Bongino had shared about, you know, these innocent young women who were um, arrested for not wearing masks at, like, Chadston or something. And, like, it was quite obvious these young women were known to police and, you know, the typical Australian sort of cop response of, like, it's all too hard, just put them in the van mm. kind of thing. And But told in this, this is dictatorial Australia. And it's like, no, this is antisocial behaviour at a shopping centre. And then with the IKEA protest, it was like, oh, my God, there is... A line of dudes with cameras positioned above the gorge who would have positioned before the demonstration and they are filming this to package it and and send it to the Americans. Mm. And sure enough, in my channels, I saw it again and again and again. And, you know, this claim that little old, innocent little old ladies just protesting for their rights were beaten up by police. And it's like, they're dudes, they're dressed like that deliberately. This has been, in, this is a media fiction. But it wasn't for our benefit, it was for the benefit of the American right to create this illusion of Australia. Because at the time, of course, the, Austra- Australia, the Australian coronavirus response meant that we weren't, you know, dropping dead all over the place, which wasn't the case in Republican strongholds like Florida. Mm. Like, and, and they were using those images. And that's what's... The globalisation of political discussion also means recruitment into globalised propaganda systems. It's interesting to watch the Liberal Party in Victoria play footsie with this movement, uh, particularly the anti-vaxxer community, and during and post the pandemic. Oh, it's terrifying. And they shouldn't be doing it. And they should be smarter than that, but they're not. You know, there's a lot of Kool-Aid that's been drunk in the centre-right parties, which everybody has found out to their peril. I mean, you look at what's happened to the Tory party in Britain because this is what Boris Johnson embraced with the whole Brexit 
campaign, these these you know these sort of lunatic fringe beliefs that you know again and again, and I'm sure it's just a coincidence, seem to be amplified by pro-Russian government accounts. I mean, crazy, right? I mean, what interest would Russia possibly have uh, in sowing discord and disharmony in the democratic states of the West? I mean, certainly let's just say in the five years before their invasion of Ukraine this year in February, I mean, the largest naval base in Europe is in the UK. I mean, not that the UK is part of Europe now. Mm. I mean, I mean, which is handy, like, mm. yeah. really. And, you know, obviously the phone call between Trump and Zelensky about the Americans supplying military aid to Ukraine and that all getting very mercury, which was, of course, the cause of his first impeachment. Like, you can read a lot of things going... It's not like the Russians are creating these people. The Russians are not creating conspiracy theorists. And like I said, the QAnon mythology is 2,500 years old. The Russians are not coming up with the nonsense about the Speaker's Chair in the Australian Parliament House. But they amplify this. There's a really good book written by a friend of mine who I interviewed in my book called Nina Yankovic, who's a disinformation scholar who advised the present government of Ukraine about counter-disinformation against Russian propaganda, who's an expert in all of this stuff. And the point she makes in that book is that, you know, bad faith actors, whether the Russians or any other sort of anti-Western government, they don't create this stuff, but they amplify division and they create, you know, the appearance that these movements are much bigger than they are. Mm. And they use various information warfare tools in order to do that. Because while the West is divided and crazy and, you know, like drifting towards fascism or maybe not, a, is everything okay? Are they going to kill Daniel Andrews and Michael Gunner? We don't even know. It's it, the focus on domestic resolution obviously is going to be prioritised over, say, the defence of a sovereign country that maybe Russia is planning to invade. Is there... Uh, how much responsibility do we lay at the hands, or the feet rather, of, of mainstream media? Are people, in your, from your research, were people seeking out alternate sources of, you know, quote-unquote news because yeah. they were sort of looking at the mainstream news and going, this doesn't reflect my attitudes or I'm not interested in this or... Yeah, yeah. I mean, that is a big part of it is that people do seek out alternative forms of information because they want to confirm their own biases. And the really interesting part of writing the book for me was going, wow, do I do this? And, uh, you know, like, because I want to live in a progressive left-wing world that's moving towards socialism at whatever speed it's capable of, really. Mm. I mean, that's really where my what my heart yearns for is democratic socialism. And obviously I have a bias in going, oh, wow, this piece of news confirms my worldview that that's what's happening. And writing the book, I was like, you know, I've really got to make an effort to get out of my own bubble and understand what's going on and have made a point of reading a lot more broadly. But obviously within the pro-democratic spectrum, like I'm not particularly interested in the opinions of authoritarians. But there needs to be a dialogue between the left and the centre-right. The most powerful coalition in history involved the radical left, the centre-left, um, centrist liberals and the centre-right and defeated Nazism in mm. Europe. And that, you know, was an unambiguous good. And that's really how Western societies, that coalition has to continue because fascists... Fascists have no loyalty to anyone, um, not even to themselves, and will kill and destroy everything, as we're seeing, you know, in these, um, in in the sort of neo-fascist movements. And so I I understand the mistrust of also a mistrust of a corporate news that has 
you know, that has got certain subjects wrong and not provided the analysis they should have, like covering the whole Trump ascendancy as some kind of like tennis match between mm. a reality TV star and that woman who everybody thought was a bit smart for her own good was unbelievably unhealthy for democracy. And we have had an issue that in a broken... In, in a media environment, a media industry that's been commercially broken by the internet and is still trying to work out the place of mastheads and legacy media and how that's all supposed to function, you have networks that went, we're just going to double down on the audience we have and get them to spend more money. Like, I had this very revelatory experience. I was in Texas when uh, Lehman Brothers collapsed and when the Bush government, the Bush administration at the time had to bail out Lehman Brothers and you had Republicans giving billions of dollars in aid to all these other businesses affected in the the famous bailouts at the time. And watching Fox News in a hotel room in Texas when that happened was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life because it was maximum overdrive, like literally commentators screaming about the disaster that was unfolding and it was a disaster and this was such a disaster, cut immediately to ads for over-the-counter medications to make you feel calmer. Mm. So it'd be like, oh, my God, the economy is collapsing. Everything is going wrong. What is the government going to do? I'm just watching all this value fall off everything. Your retirement fund, your kid's college fund, it's all falling apart. Have you ever felt feelings of anxiousness or restlessness? Do you struggle to get to sleep at night. You might want to try Cervavitax, you know, and it was it was just completely surreal. And that's the money-making model. Mm. Like, that's what they're doing. And Fox knows, I mean, every media organisation in the world, even the ones I like, know that if it bleeds, it leads mm. because people are more susceptible to advertising if they're angry or they're frightened. And, of course, the conspiracy theories and, you know, polarised right-wing craziness of MAGA world that's spilling all over the world, you don't actually need a majority to make money. You just need a market that will pay. Like the VP from Citibank who's running his QAnon site and getting them to pay subscription money to it. You don't need a massive amount of people to make a massive amount of money. And Trump has gotten onto this. Like Trump is just, you know, he's just a walking narcissism. He's a megalomaniac with no ideological conviction one way or another. Like, ideology is beyond his physical body and therefore he doesn't really care about it. He would stab anyone, destroy anyone. But he has gravitated towards these mythologies and these positions, one, because they feed his ego, but two, they feed his pockets. Like, the Trump fundraising emails are just unbelievable. And there has, of course, been this recent exposure in America of how the money is going to him personally and to his enterprises, this political fundraising money, not to any of the candidates in the Republican Party that he supports. And the grift is real. In my book, I talk about it a lot, calling it um, conspiracy entrepreneurialism, that if you just say the right thing at the right time in front of the people with money, it doesn't need to be a huge community, just one that's willing to pay. And, you know, you see it everywhere, like these self-fostering communities, and you can't destroy the... Like, the grift will continue... Um, what's required is massive amounts of institutional cultural resistance to disinformation. So it becomes socially unpalatable and, you know, a form of 
um, self marginalization to enter these communities th that are that the rest of the community doesn't accept in order to minimize the size of the damage that they can create. It's interesting actually watching uh, you know all of the things that's been going on in the United States uh, recently. Every little crisis that happens with Donald Trump, he is making money out of it. Broad you know emails go out, fundraising emails go out to his uh, his lists to try and make more money out of it. So he kind of in some ways he actually wants like the stuff around the uh, the 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 the, um, the 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 what do you call it? The materials, the fucking what are those things called? The I've got a mental block. All the materials that's in Mar-a-Lago that he shouldn't yeah. have. Basically. Oh yeah, the documents. All, all the documentation, yeah. exactly. Um, he wants that story to kind of kick along because he's making money out oh, of yeah, it. Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. At the same time. Yep. I know you got to go. So last question. I, I, I mean, everyone should really read my book. Like I go into some detail about. We're this. Yeah, absolutely. We're going to give the, we're going to give that a, a plug in the moment. I just think the 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 trial with Alex Jones from Info, Infowars was interesting, and I'm just wondering: is this a moment in which we can start to see a fight back against misinformation? I know it's probably not as deep enough into that sort of QAnon stuff, but for Alex Jones. Oh no! I mean, Alex Jones is absolutely central to all of this stuff. I mean, Alex Jones propagandised the Pizzagate shooter. The Pizzagate shooter was a guy from North Carolina who was convinced from watching hours and hours and hours of Alex Jones that Hillary Clinton was um, mutilating and eating and raping children in the basement of a Washington pizza restaurant and went there with the gun, shot up the restaurant and found it didn't even have a basement. Hillary Clinton was nowhere to be seen. And, I mean, that was all propagandised through Alex Jones and the people he was promoting. Uh, Alex Jones creates, like, this perpetual hysteria machine and the other thing too is i want people to understand the function of alex jones in that kind of propaganda environment because you can justify to yourself that you're still centrist and you're too reasonable if you reject alex jones because he makes tucker carlson who's also a white supremacist and a nationalist and a loon and a grifter an extremely dangerous right-wing demagogue he makes him look perf perfectly reasonable you know it's constantly pushing the window of what's acceptable to people and it's these are radicalization channels and they know that like steve bannon who emerges as the villain in my book he is an extremely intelligent man he is basically the nathan bedford forest of the modern far right he is tactically and theoretically quite brilliant and has understood how to like as i did as a student understood that you can be part of a minority and still exercise enormous amounts of power if you understand how you know how enough of a coalition can be built where the choke points of power are where the battles you can win are you know and he and there is a lot of theoretical reasoning going on about how they can turn America into a white ethno state. That's not an exaggeration. Like, mm. they're all very open about what they're doing. Steve Bannon gives speeches quoting Julius Avola, who during who was an Italian philosopher, traditionalist philosopher, who described women, as, has a famous essay called Woman as Thing, saying that, you know, women should really aspire to throw themselves on funeral pyres when their husbands die. It is, you know, an example of their, their greatest loyalty and meaning and Julius Avola was writing this stuff in Italy during fascism decided that the fascists in Italy were too weak and went to Germany to be with people who are a little bit more hardcore Bannon quotes him mm. like they are part of a extremely well-resourced well-reasoned right-wing infrastructure and they are looking at systems of power and how they can take them over the kind of things that have been going on with the appointment of judges under Trump 
tell me you think Trump ever read the CV of a single judge yeah, that he appointed. You know, there are lists, you know, they've already talked about how if they get power again, they're going to fire everybody and they're going to take over. And the QAnon community and this community of believers, and this is the real danger that I don't know if Liberal Party opportunists in Victoria or elsewhere understand that they're in. Because what happened in the United States is that that the traditional centre-right, the establishment centre-right, the machinists of the right who didn't really think about the ideology beyond a few things they kind of supported, when look at this crowd of people who will make propaganda on their own dime, who will mobilise online, who will spread disinformation, who will turn up to protests, who will do these things. We can use them. We can use them as a solid, reliable vote. We can use them. And this is the important um, element in America. We can use them to depress turnout because they're scary looking and they'll turn up with you know guns and flags and the rest of it they will convince the marginalized people who tend to vote democrat to not turn up because they feel unsafe you know isn't this great we can have this this army of mobilization and we can use them to message test they'll put out all of this crazy disinformation and whatever gets purchased we will run with in a mainstream sense you know isn't this great you can see the liberals in victoria look i like in the United States, who are a couple of a couple of years ahead of us, and you can see the just sort of party boys in in Victoria going, yeah, 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 we can do that, and we can sort of have them out on the streets and cause chaos and dysfunction and blame everything on Daniel Andrews and you know position ourselves as these sort of champions of freedom, even though these people sort of max out at about fifteen thousand people. Mm. Um, but what happens is they take over the party structure, and in America that has meant that if you don't toe the line with this nuttery, you will lose. Um, like Liz Cheney, Liz Cheney, literally one of the most right-wing pro-democracy people ever, um, lost her, what we would call a pre-selection, her primary, because she wasn't cr uh, crazy enough right-wing. She's a freaking Cheney, mm, like, and yeah. she's not right-wing enough for these people because she refused to, you know, be in the Trump cult. Um, in Australia, the, the greater threat to the Liberal, the Liberal Party is that universal enfranchisement, also known as compulsory voting, means that if the Liberal Party gets taken over by those people, that's the end of their democratic opportunity. Because, you know, people don't like them. Like, people don't like extremists. And in a country, and this is why defending universal enfranchisement is the most... If you want to do something to stop extremism, it doesn't matter if you're on the far left, it doesn't matter if you're on the centre-right, anything in between, defending that mechanism, keeping them out of our polity is number one. And that gives us the cultural resilience to position ourselves as a legitimate pro-democracy majority rejecting the extremist, extremism of a fringe. And the closer the Liberal Party want to get to them, the more they'll find themselves alienated. And, you know, like, you can see it. You can see the, that Tory drift happening in terms of the Teals. I mean, the Teals are, that's, you know, they're aspirational Liberals. Mm. The purging of Julia Banks, which I just thought was suicidal from the Liberals, like, isn't she your poster girl kind of candidate? Self-made, migrant family, you know, socially liberal, economically conservative. Like, that's quite a potent voter tractor, nah, dumped. And then you have people like Josh Frydenberg, who should be absolute blue ribbon, inner city liberal, parroting, you know, the kind of nuttiness that his own electorate couldn't abide. 
And of course, the Nationals growing in power in Western Australia, as you know, for whatever that's worth. How many Conservative voters are left in Western Australia? Like twelve, and most of them are National Party now. Like it's it's a it's a taint and a poison that I don't think the the Liberals are borrowing so heavily from the American and British playbooks. But of course, the threat is that the Liberals will start doubling down on abolishing universal enf enfranchisement, and that's the real danger. On that note, uh, you did end on a high note because I'd like to know that the Liberal Party are about to disintegrate into their own black hole. Uh, where, how can you buy the book? What's the name of the book? QAnon? And Look, on. you can, I always say first, at your local independent bookstore. It's always online. You can always order it online. You can get it at Woolies and Big W. Um, always support an Australian chain like Dimix over an international one. But you can get it from Book Depository, Amazon. Um, it's an e-book. Uh, and it's also an audio book. So you can just search for it online. Apple has it, um, Amazon has it as an audio book. And it's been really interesting, like friends of mine are like long car journeys listening because I narrate it and you get this full sort of story of conspiratorial politics narrated in my bogan voice. I was recording it and I said to them, am I the first bogan to do an audio book? And they were like, in this studio, which is kind of exciting. <laughs> so it'll be a cultural treat for everybody. Why is the waitress talking about information systems? Are you doing anything for the Writers' Festival? No, nah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I am about to go to Canberra to Wimdoy to speak about women in male-dominated industries and I am going to be back in Sydney as my mother is very unwell. Very good. Van Batham, wonderful to have you on the show. Best of luck with the book. Donnelly, literally the greatest experiences I had in student politics were making friends with people like you and it took us a while to get there, but my God, that bond is forever now. It is indeed. Hey there, thanks for listening to Social Democratic. Did you like the podcast? Hit the follow or subscribe button and be sure to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. And to get all the latest updates on Socially Democratic, follow Dunstreet on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and LinkedIn. And we'll see you next Friday. Socially Democratic was brought to you by Morris Blackburn Lawyers. Morris Blackburn lawyers have spent more than a century paving the hard path to justice for everyday Australians. They've helped over 500,000 Australians turn their situation around and they know how the system works. Their experience and skills means you'll get the best results possible. Find out more on their website, morrisblackburn.com.au. Morris Blackburn, experience you can count on.